Hello, and welcome to the Book Cult Podcast, where we read books and talk about them. I'm Vincent Valella. Good morning, Adrian. Good morning, Vince. I'm Adrian, Adrian Galvin. This is episode 2.2, House on the Borderlands, chapters 2 and 3. This is a 1908 horror short story by William Hope Hodgson. Vince is going to bring you up to speed on who he was and where we are in the story right now. So, I... I wanted to go and do some background investigation on uh, Hodgson. So I just looked up some some articles, like his Wikipedia page, read, read some things, and he's a very interesting guy. He was born in 1877, and he was one of 12 kids. Now, when we say 12, one of 12 kids, there were only nine of them. Three of them died before they were four, which wasn't that strange at this time, but just kind of like a brutal time period. Excellent. Um, so that's what he grew up with. His uh, father was a priest, um, and he moved like five or six times up before he was even in what would be secondary school. Um, next, really, oh, so by the way, he was born in 1877 and died in 1918, meaning mm -hmm. he died when he was 40. Oh, nice. Nice long life there. So, he's going to school, um, and he was in a boarding school, and he didn't like it. Mm. So, he ran away and joined the Navy awesome now in the navy he he was pretty short so he was a he i believe he was about five two he was two inches shorter than i am nice you must uh sympathize with him over there <laughs> yeah yeah oh you just wait <laughs> you just wait i'm gonna show you how much i sympathize with him oh yeah tell me so there's a um researcher named sam moskowitz mm -hmm. and there's who did a biography on him and there's a quote from his work mm. because in the navy he was getting like picked on and one of the things he specialized like he really was good at is bodybuilding <laughs> um and he wasn't he awesome. he wasn't a, well i'll just read it the primary motivation of his body development was not health but self-defense <laughs> His relatively short height and sensitive, almost beautiful face made him an irresistible target for bullying seamen. <laughs> when they moved in to pulverize him, they would learn too late that they had come to grips with easily one of the most powerful men, pound for pound, in all of England. <laughs> so here's this short strikingly beautiful man strikingly beautiful who just i guess exercised constantly so he could beat people up i like that it's nice nice trojan horse approach to life so he was a seaman he worked in the navy mm. um and while he was there he also broke into poetry and becoming an author he was also a photographer ah just like you um one of the interesting things are the subjects he examined with his photography. Mm. I was thinking, you know, it'd be like ocean sunsets. No, his chosen topics were the Aurora Borealis, cyclones, lightning, sharks, and maggots. That is awesome. <laughs> I totally support that list of photographic subjects. Other things he did over the course of his life is he, as a bodybuilder, he also fashioned himself as a showman. Um, so he had a run-in with Harry Houdini. Oh. Um, where he did a show and Houdini report commented on him intentionally trying to injure him with manacles 
by buckling them too tight. That's awesome. Um, One of his other showman uh, accomplishments was he found the steepest hill in town with steps and rode a bicycle down it. Nice. He's like a weird circus man. It's like the circus strongman. Um, And among poetry, uh, photography, and books, he also uh, published some like self-help exercise books. Nice. Um, He sounds like someone we would be friends with. So, yeah, he sounds like Wanda. He seems really cool. (laughs) Um, So he was he was he escaped school. He ran away from school to become a seaman. Then he kind of had his life as a performer author photographer like kind of just an interesting person artist yeah is that is that the word i think so <laughs> so then world war one happened oh. and this is this is one of the this is very interesting and i mm. wonder there there's probably a story here but i don't i think it's probably lost to history he refused so he was pretty high ranking when he left the navy mm. and then when he entered world war one he refused to be in the navy for some reason. Huh. That's weird. He chose to join the army. Oh, okay. Got it. Um, so he wanted to get some. Yeah, but even though he was a high rank, he chose to go in as a lower rank to he be chose to enlist. in the army. Wow. Um, and then in 1918, he was hit from uh, what is quoted as a direct hit from an artillery shell. Oh, wow. Um, so I guess there's worse is that ways how to he go. died? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Wow, that's amazing. It's a different generation, man. So I think when we're looking at his work, we can see about his how he felt about the ocean and the abyss mm-hmm. and his general experiences with like showmanship and mm-hmm. like the idea of being larger than life mm-hmm. in his work. Um, so I want to particularly be mindful about him when I'm looking at this work. Nice. Because I think it's very interesting. Yeah, that was awesome. Thank you. Um, hopefully we continue doing wonderful author bios. And let's go in to chapter two. Um, Chapter one had us with the author and his friend Tonneson. Am I saying that right? Tonneson? I believe. Yeah, Tonneson. They they went on a fishing trip in the backwoods of Ireland. Right. And they they, are very fond of the Irish people. (laughs) They're very fond. If you reference our previous episode, you can learn more about that. They, They go camping and they find... Uh, they're following the river upstream. They find some some ruins mm. over a waterfall. Yeah, over like a giant cataract, like a hundred foot cenote pit into the ground. And in the ruins, they find the manuscript. Mm. So now we're, as we're examining chapter two, we're seeing them reading the manuscript to each other over the campfire. Right. Let's get some. So chapter two is called The Plane of Silence. Vince is going to give you the first sentence. I am an old man. I live here in this ancient house surrounded by huge unkempt gardens. The peasantry who inhabit the wilderness beyond say that I am mad. That is because I will have nothing to do with them. I live here alone with my old sister, who is also my housekeeper. We keep no servants. I hate them. I have one friend, a dog. Yes, I would sooner have sooner have old Pepper than the rest of rest of creation together. He at least understands me and has a sense enough to leave me alone when I'm in my dark moods. Ooh. So he he describes that he is 
recording this, we're reading his diary. Mm. Um, if you remember in the previous section, it says that the manuscript was found around a broken writing desk. Right. Yeah. So we are, we are now seeing him at his writing desk, um, writing in his journal. Mm. And I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Well, I think it's interesting to talk about him because he has this kind of withdrawn old person aspect, like a kind of crotchety old man. Um, but I think he's like, he makes me feel sympathetic. Like I, I feel like he's someone who is retracting from the world in a way that I, I feel bad for him. Like it arouse, like the way he's described arouses a sense of sympathy for me. Do you feel that way? I, I feel bad for him, but on the other hand, he's also making deliberate choices. Mm. Like it sounds like he's just, he doesn't really like his sister. He doesn't really like people. Mm. Um, he only likes his dog mm. and everything else is a bother to him. Right. Um, and it's just, I, I get the impression that in society, mm. the old man would not be seen as someone with like high character or like lots of honor. Huh. Like people aren't looking up to this dude. That's interesting. Yeah, I definitely don't have a sense of him as being popular, but it, it makes me wonder how he got to be this way. Mm. You know, so there's a backstory that we don't know. Right. Well, there's like a lack of backstory, but an implication mm -hmm. based on his current behavior hmm. about what kind of person he is. That does make him more interesting. I hadn't even considered that. Mm. So he's talking about this house that he's living in with his sister and dog. And he describes it as i got the old place at a ridiculously low figure mm. because no one else wanted to live here right so it sounds like he's still he wants to have things right but he's just the only way he's gonna get nice things is he makes choices that no one else will make mm. by living in this this house on the borderland <laughs> well it's interesting because i you know if someone was a if I wanted a house, I don't have a lot of money and I, I would like to live somewhere nice. And if there was a place that people said, Ooh, it's spooky. I'll let you have it for half price. I would totally buy that because I don't believe in like the weird stuff that people believe. Like I don't believe in superstition. So like I'm sympathetic to his point of view. You know what I mean? Um, what do you think? You re I think you relate to him more than I do. <laughs> Which is awesome. <laughs> I'm excited to keep exploring that. Yeah, and actually he does mention superstition. So here we go back to the book. I am not superstitious, but I have ceased to deny that things happen in this old house. Things that I cannot explain. And therefore, I must needs ease my mind by writing down an account of them to the best of my ability. Though, should this my diary ever be read when I am gone... The readers will but shake their heads and be the more convinced that I was mad. So again, this actually makes me feel sympathetic to him because it's we're jumping into the story at the point where he's just stepping over his denial, right? Mm -hmm. So if we think about this from the framework of the Willows, they go, they kind of deny bad things that are happening to them. And then eventually it just, it supersedes their ability to deny it. It just becomes too crazy. And we step into the book right as that's happening to him. And he's realizing, no, there's just no, there's no way I can deny this. Bad things are happening around me. Um, and he realizes that no one will believe him. And I wonder if that's because of who he is or because of what's happening or some combination of the two of them. So I feel sympathetic to him because he knows that even if he told someone, he wouldn't be believed. 
That's an awesome point. I think that really lends this story believability. Totally. Like there's a lot of credibility here because if this were someone that just is hopping around normal day-to-day society. <laughs> hopping. Yeah, just, you know, hopping, <laughs> bumping around, buying things at the market, moving, shaking. I'd be like, yeah. oh, you're not seeing paranormal things. You're just sick. But right. the old man, I can conceptualize him being in superstitious circumstances and trying to communicate it and failing. Mm. But we have evidence otherwise. Right. And he's been set up as this person who doesn't buy into ghost stories. So talking about the old man again, I have heard that there is an old story told amongst the country people to the effect that the devil built the place, referencing the place that he lives in. However, that is as may be, true or not, I neither know nor care, save as it may have helped to cheapen it ere I came. So he's saying, even if there's a chance that the devil built the place that I live, I don't care because it was cheap. <laughs> right. And that's awesome because it, it just puts him over. To me, like the, the intro to him, it's possible to be sympathetic with him up until that point. But, you know, then it kind of, you kind of realize that he, he has this kind of intractable attitude and maybe there's a little bit of greed, kind of avarice going on in there. It's, it reminds me a little bit of Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> Like you don't, you're not sympathetic toward him at the beginning, Mm. but then you like, you do feel bad when the ghosts are like hitting him with chains and stuff. Right. Um, so I wonder if we'll see the same kind of transformation. Mm. We'll find out. So on the next page, something is about to happen to him. Um, he's in his study and here we go. Without warning, the flames of the two candles went low and then shone with a ghastly green effulgence. So this is a great word. And um, effulgence is a word that H.P. Lovecraft used frequently and used it to describe the kind of lambent glow that uh, evil things would have, like some the, the radiant glow that an evil thing would have. So back to the book. I looked up quickly, and as I did so, I saw the lights sink into a dull, ruddy tint, so that the room glowed with a strange, heavy, crimson twilight that gave the shadows behind the chairs and tables a double depth of blackness. And wherever the light struck, it was as though luminous blood had been splashed over the room. So this is a really graphic and actually really beautiful um, passage. And I can imagine this being really beautifully shot as a movie. Hmm. So I think a lot of um, a I almost think this would be better at a movie. In a way, I think there's, you know, I think I had trouble conceptualizing this. Oh yeah. I think he's using the best tool that he has, but certainly I think the, the kind of visual impact that he's imagining, he obviously has an incredibly rich imagination. And so I think, you know, if he had an animation team or a film studio, he would have been a really brilliant film director. I think that's a call to action for all our listeners (laughs) that want to make a short film. Do this part. So yeah, um, this is a passage which is atmospheric and visual, Mm -hmm. and it gives you a sense of foreboding, Um, but then something else happens. So he's building fear by describing natural sensations. Mm. And then, down on the floor, I heard a faint, frightened whimper and something pressing itself between my two feet. It was Pepper cowering under my dressing gown. Pepper, usually as brave as a lion, 
It was this movement of the dogs, I think, that gave me the first twinge of real fear. I love this part because I, maybe you see things like you don't always trust your eyes. Mm. Like you can, you can see things at night or maybe you're tired. That doesn't always happen. But then if another agent, which you trust, mm. starts reacting to it. And you know, you always like trust dogs, like they can hear earthquakes before they happen. Right. They can like judge people's characters just by looking at them. Mm. Or so people say, <laughs> if a dog, if, if your dog is scared, mm. you know, something's wrong. And that's something that everyone that has a dog or animal understands. Right. Like and I know if my ferrets start freaking out, like, no, this honestly happens. Like I know if they're like smelling or acting weird, like I know something is going on that I need to fix. Mm. Yeah. I think, um, pepper's really included as a kind of canary in the coal mine. Mm. Um, that is that, a, is that foreshadowing? <laughs> Maybe it is. So he's terrified about, he's very, getting very scared. He's feeling real fear. Mm. And then there's a, there's a transition point here. More light sensations begin to happen. A fog comes into the room. And then there's one short little section where he says, I did not move. I felt distinctly frightened. And this section sets up a, the next phase of this chapter where he's really not in control of what's happening. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because this kind of reminds me of a dream state. Like he's transitioning into a dream state right now. And it reminds me a little bit of the sort of sleep paralysis night terror experience that they go through in the willows when he goes to sleep and he wakes up with just that sort of crushing weight on his chest. Um, Yeah, it has that same feel. I think I I had not picked up on that when I first read that. And I think that's Mm -hmm. excellent. Um, analysis because it also ties into something that generally happens throughout this chapter and section in that his body and spirit are separate. Mm-hmm. And I believe as best as I understand during this time period, there was a general sense that there was your physical body and your spirit as two separate things. Oh, interesting. Yeah. This is, it's a description of an out of body experience. Yeah. And this is something that everyone at this time, this is like current spiritual zeitgeist. Right. Yeah, that's a really good piece to add in there. Nice. And I'm going to talk about sort of the beginning of his vision. So he experiences fear, as you mentioned, and then he starts to see this light. Here we go to the book. Gradually, as I became more accustomed to the idea, I realized that I was looking out onto a vast plain lit with the same gloomy twilight that pervaded the room. The immensity of this plain scarcely can be conceived. In no part could I perceive its confines. It seemed to broaden, spread out, so that the eye failed to perceive any limitation. Slowly, the details of the nearer portions began to grow clear, and then in a moment almost, the light died away, and the vision, if vision it were, faded and was gone. So he gets this kind of like first pulse, um, almost as uh, like a premonition of what's going to be happening to him. And I love the way it kind of drifts into focus. You know, at first he just, he, he perceives this sort of infinite plane, but he, he mentions that things slowly come into focus. And that really reminds me of the way you kind of like slide into a dream state where you might still be aware of something in the real world, but there's also kind of this 
warped impossible thing happening in your mind at the same time and because your mind is falling asleep it kind of manages to like jam them together so i get the impression of him still sitting there in his room but then seeing but out into the other world right and he can't move because he's in this sort of like out of body dream state now i don't know about you but when i was reading this i was generally confused because there's just describings of sensations and light and smoke and pressing feelings mm. i i didn't know what was going on um, and only until reading more did I realize that this was likely intentional. Mm. Your confusion, he intended to confuse you. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And I think probably for, well, I don't know. I was about to say that for people at the time, it might have been more confusing. Um, because I think for, at least for me, I grew up with this kind of fantastical horror in my life. Like I've heard descriptions like this, but I'm not sure in, you know, 1908 that this was really a common practice of writing about stuff like this. So I think it might've been even more impactful and confusing for those people. When I was looking up the bio of Hodgson, mm. they only listed three authors that influenced him and only one of them was horror. Huh? Interesting. So this might've been like, this might have been new. Yeah. I think it was quite influential. So, uh, we're moving on his oh, words. <laughs> we are moving on in his vision a little bit. Here we go back to the book An indefinite period passed. Then for the last time I saw the earth an enduring globule of radiant blue swimming in an eternity of ether. And there I, a fragile flake of soul dust flickering silently across the void from the distant blue into the expanse of the unknown. So this is cool. This is a change because at, um, previously he was sitting in his room, um, and this vision is sort of calling to him and he's seeing into it, but now he's kind of sliding into the vision. And in this moment, he looks over his shoulder and he sees the earth disappear in the back, which I think to me symbolizes that he's passing out of this world. I want to make a note here for future readings mm. because i think the idea of space is going to be a theme that we should examine once we get more like this is going to happen again mm. this idea of like space and other worlds right but i think with more passages it would be fruitful to talk about it in the future yeah i think so too so bookmark that in your mind so talking about other worlds and other worldly experiences mm. um he's going through the dream state um, he's zoomed out um, of Earth. And then something changes. Presently, I landed and stood, surrounded by a great waste of loneliness. The place was lit with a gloomy twilight that gave an impression of indescribable desolation. Afar to my right within the sky, there burnt a gigantic ring of a dull red fire, from the outer edge of which we were projected huge, writhing flames darted and jagged. The interior of this ring was black, black as the gloom of the outer night. I comprehended at once that it was from this extraordinary sun that the place derived its doleful light. I was especially excited to read this passage hmm. because I love this description of a burnt out sun casting yeah. a doleful light upon the land. Yeah. It sounds wholly uncomfortable because hmm. like the sun's nice right. i like when i see the sun mm. it makes me happy right not this sun no <laughs> that's been completely removed and there's often this juxtaposition of what is nature and what is comfortable versus what 
might be nature but is uncomfortable mm. and that's a thing they did in the willows and that's the thing that happens in this story for making maybe not fear mm. but giving you a foundation that isn't solid by which to build fear upon right and i love how the this entire scene is basically just dominated by this sun like he doesn't even go into details of a landscape you know he says he sees this plane with things coming into focus but you never hear what they are and so he's just flying and it's an entire page where he's just in this land that's basically dominated by light um so it's a really it's a really interesting like abstract yet ominous passage and we're just going to finish it up here this is the last sentence at first i saw it far ahead like a long hillock on the surface of the plain then as i drew nearer I perceived that I had been mistaken, for instead of a low hill, I made out now a chain of great mountains, whose distant peaks towered up into the red gloom until they were almost lost to sight. And I really like that because it helps you to understand the scale of the place. So he mentions that the plane is huge, basically you can't perceive the limits of it. But when you describe infinity, that doesn't really help. Because you're like, oh, it's infinite. Great, we can't conceive of that. Just, just imagine infinity. You're good. Right. Boom. There it is. Not helpful. But this, you know, he describes this tiny, tiny little hillock. But then as he gets closer, it turns out to be these massive, craggy mountains that tower over him. And I think that... Um, I can imagine that. Exactly. Like, I've seen hills in the distance and I get close and I'm like, oh, I definitely can't climb up that. Right. It ties it to a scale that you can understand, which actually helps you understand the even larger scale. That's an excellent writing convention. Yeah, it's really nice. So transitioning into chapter three, the house in the arena. And so after a time, I came to the mountains. Then the course of my journey was altered and I began to move along their bases until all at once I saw that I had come opposite to a vast rift opening into the mountains. Now, I, we were talking about this a little bit before the show. The mountains seem important. And we're going to talk more about what's going on in the mountains, but I don't really understand what the purpose of the mountains is mm. or what even mountains in literature could signify. Right. So I have a theory about that, especially at this time, mountains were, mountains are still basically an inaccessible realm oh. high in the sky. And so I think there's something about it being this sort of like Mount Olympus style, inaccessible realm of the gods. If you think about like, mount everest it's this sort of unconquerable huge cold peak that looms above you oh. and i think traditionally that's the place that the gods live hmm. i also think it's interesting that he uh it says the course of my journey was altered and so we're beginning to see that something is in control of this journey right it's not him like he's being guided through an experience somehow that is a good point because how would he know exactly hmm Okay, so moving on here, we're about to uh, come to one of the central passages of the book, actually. Here we go, back to the book. I was confounded with amazement to behold at a distance of several miles and occupying the center of the arena, a stupendous structure built apparently of green jade. Yet in itself, it was not the discovery of the building that had so astonished me, but the fact which became every moment more apparent that in no particular save in color and its enormous size did the lonely structure vary from this house in which I live. So it turns out that he's being led to an exact copy of his own house, but it's made of this beautiful green stone. 
uh, and I think this is, you finally understand that um, he's been transitioned to the other world and that his house is actually this kind of interdimensional portal or thin space that takes him to the other Ooh, That kind of reminds me of the, the Willows. Willows. <laughs> Another thing I wanted to point out from this section is that the house is built of not just any green stone, green jade. Mm. Um, oh, maybe and I, a little breath of that Oriental. I think yeah, during this time period, jade was seen as some mystical mm. object with magical powers. Right. And then that's why the readers of this during that time period would understand that something built of jade was something magical. <laughs> so a little bit further on, back to the book. And then as I peered, curiously, a new terror came to me. For a way up among the dim peaks to my right, I had descried a vast shape of blackness, giant-like. It grew upon my sight, and had an enormous equine head with gigantic ears, and seemed to peer steadfastly down into the arena. There was that about the pose that gave me the impression of an eternal watchfulness, of having warded that dismal place through unknown eternities. I, I really enjoyed this god. Yeah. Um, because later, later in this section... He describes more about how it has skulls hanging off of it. It's mm -hmm. like this huge horse goat. And then this clues us in that the old man is somewhat educated. Mm -hmm. Because he correctly, well, we assume correctly, right. he identifies it as Kali, the Hindu goddess of death. Mm -hmm. Which means that for some reason, this individual has known about that before. Right. Like I, if you showed me a picture of Kali, I wouldn't be like, oh, yes, Kali. <laughs> um yeah, he uh, he is knowledgeable and at least well-read. So he sees this giant god staring down into the arena. And then his attention goes to the mountains. Now I saw that there were other things up among the mountains. Further off, reclining on a lofty ledge, I made out a livid mass, irregular and ghoulish. So he sees these figures up on the mountains and slowly they come into focus. Several I recognized almost as mythological, sorry, almost immediately as mythological deities. Others were strange to me, utterly strange beyond the power of a human mind to conceive. Nice. I think that's a really cool passage. And it reminds me of H.P. Lovecraft that he has this conception of elder gods. So in H.P. Lovecraft's universe, there are the gods that we think of, you know, Seth and Horus and all these kind of traditional mythological deities. But then he describes greater horrors that are beyond man's mind to conceive. And I think he's getting a little bit of that from here. And I, I was filled with a terrible sense of overwhelming horror and fear and repugnance. Yet, in spite of these, I wondered exceedingly. Was there then, after all, something in the old heathen worship, something more than the mere defying of men, animals, and elementals? Sorry, deifying of men, animals, and elementals. The thought that gripped me, the thought that gripped me was there. So he's, this is him starting to go from being, what he set up at the beginning of the chapter is like mm -hmm. almost a not- uh, spiritual person right. like he didn't care if the devil built the house mm. but now he's seeing these gods and wondering if are the religions of old real right 
And I think there's two things there. One is it's a great parallel to the Swede. So all these things happen to the Swede, and part of the reason that it affects you is because the Swede is set up throughout the book as this kind of super competent survivalist. This is part of the Willows. And so when he starts having trouble surviving in a natural realm, you're like, wow, even this guy who's like hardcore is having trouble. And I think there's a bit of a parallel here where he he's present the old man is presented as a hardened kind of old man who won't who doesn't give in to any form of superstition and yet he's kind of stepped slowly along this path to where he starts to question and fear and I think that helps he draw you into the text and into the fear. I also saw this as tying into the the spirit of the times where spiritualism was a big thing during this time period and there was a resurgence of people maybe being interested in heathen religions. Right. So we're going on to the next page because he's going to see something pretty interesting here. So he's still floating in the mountains, observing this jade house. Then all at once, something caught my vision, something that came round one of the huge buttresses of the house. And so into full view, it was a gigantic thing and moved with a curious lope almost upright, after the manner of a man. It was quite unclothed, and had a remarkable luminous appearance. Yet it was the face that attracted and frightened me the most. It was the face of a swine. And I think this is interesting because it's a direct reference to Egyptian gods. He mentions on the previous page, we didn't talk about it, but he um, identifies one of the gods as Seth and Horus. Mm -hmm. And those are two Egyptian deities. Horus has a falcon head. A lot of Egyptian deities have the head of an animal. And so it's almost like there's this special deity of his house and it's this swine headed man. And he's about to have this kind of uh, terrifying dream experience with this creature. Here we go back to the book. Then immediately I became aware that it was coming toward me swiftly and silently. In an instant, it had covered half the distance that lay between and still I was born helplessly to meet it. Only a hundred yards and the brutish ferocity of the giant face numbed me with a feeling of unmitigated horror. I could have screamed in the supremeness of my fear, and then, in the very moment of my extremity and despair, I became conscious that I was looking down upon the arena from a rapidly increasing height. I was rising, rising. In an inconceivably short while, I had reached an altitude of many hundred feet. Beneath me, the spot that I had just left was occupied by the foul swine creature. It had gone down on all fours and was snuffing and rooting like a veritable hog at the surface of the arena. A moment and it rose to its feet, clutching upward with an expression of desire upon its face, such as I have never seen in this world. So there's a lot in there. And it's a really, it, it reminds me of nightmares that I've had because he's not in charge of what's happening. But there's a critical difference because I don't know if you share this experience, but in any nightmare where things are going wrong and I feel powerless and my body won't act to save me, in the moment when I'm being attacked by the creature that I'm afraid of, the nightmare kind of ends, right? But this is different because he gets passed by this creature to kind of terrorize him, but he gets saved by that unknown force that's guiding his journey for reasons that we can't understand. I love I loved this little the last sentence here about how the pig thing is on the ground mm. searching for him, doesn't find him, and then senses him and reaches for him. That's right. so scary. Because like it it gives the impression that whatever's controlling him and the pig thing are separate. Right. And if things had been slightly different, the pig thing would have 
rent him to pieces. Certainly. And it's almost like the inverse of the willows where they're in the human world and these other world beings are sort of accidentally reaching into their space. But here he's being kind of pulled into the place and it can't quite sense him. Like the, the other world being is the one that can't sense him. What do you think about it? So it, it, sh- it gave examples of lots of gods. There was a horse God, mm. there was set and Horus. Mm. What do you think about it being a pig man? Mm. Well, I think that he's taking advantage of the way that pigs kind of root around in things and they have that big muzzle and they, um, you know, they're good at finding truffles, for example, and they can kind of sniff things and gouge around and dig around. And we're going to see, I didn't read the passage, but it turns out that the, the swine man is trying to get into the jade house and it's sort of snuffling and digging around at the roots. And I feel like he's using that metaphor to give you the sense of this thing that's trying to kind of like sniff him out and find him. I, I was actually, I was talking to Molly last night about this. Mm. Um, we were talking about husbandary and like raising animals. Yeah. And she was like explaining how she wanted to like, Oh, like maybe I'll raise bunnies or chickens. (laughs) Um, and I was like explaining to her how these are different than pets and if we were started to raise animals, we would also probably have to slaughter the animals. Mm. Um, and pigs, I think, are interesting for that reason, because when you raise pigs, pigs don't produce anything other than meat. Mm. So I think inherent in pig farming, mm-hmm. there's kind of this gross hmm. nature that is often separate. Like when you go to a farm, you maybe look at chickens, you look at goats, you look at pigs. Right. You enjoy eggs, you enjoy wool, but you, you don't really, no one's like, hey, do you want to come to the pig slaughter? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they do. And so I think there's something generally vile and gross to non butchering societies mm. about pigs. And that is reflected here that like, yeah, when pig slaughtering is not a public spectacle often. Right. Um, but that might just be my take on it. Cause I like thinking about these things. Yeah, no, I think that's totally right. And if you think about, um, so pig feed is often referred to as slop. And a yeah. big pen has this kind of like muddy, grungy, disgusting feel to it. And so I think he's he's tapping into your sense of just grossness and impurity. These things seem really vile and impure. So I think that's part of the advantage. Part I wonder, of the reason he chose that. Did you ever re- watch uh, Mad Max and the Thunderdome? Yeah. I wonder if that's why they use pigs there also. Oh, yeah, kind of. Yeah, it's kind of this like base disgusting there's like a general us. pig association that stayed true throughout the ages right poor pigs mm, yeah so i want to fast forward to the last few sentences cool because he's going through this dream state he's pulled up mm. and gradually as i start gradually as i started this grew remote and died away into a dim far mystery of red against an unfathomable night a while and even this had gone, and I was wrapped in the impalpable lightness, lightless gloom. <laughs> so this generally is confusing, but you sense that things are getting darker. Right. Um, so I think it sets it up for a transition. Yes. Um, now before, so we, we've just ended um, section three. Yeah. And I want to ask you a question. What do you think the parallels between this and general experiences of like mental illness are. Hmm. Yeah, I think that takes it back a little bit to where he was saying he wouldn't be believed. Um, 
where he has this. So I think when people perceive others that have depression or schizophrenia, it's easy from the outside to kind of say, well, why don't you just be happier? Why don't you just work out more or whatever? Because you're not having that experience yourself. And so you can't quite relate to it. And in the same way, he's having this completely overwhelming and bizarre, fantastical experience. And he knows as it's happening that he can't describe it to anyone and have them believe him. So it's, it, it isolates him. I think the, the parallel is in the isolation. I, I got a general feeling about that and I sensed there was something there. Mm-hmm. What I, what I, my impression was like similar to that, that he doesn't really have control over this. Right. That there's things that are not pleasant happening and he, he doesn't, he's unable to meaningfully impact his situation. Right. So, right on. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting us. Write a review, subscribe, give us a rating, and share this with a friend. This is the Book Cult Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this as much as we did. See you next week.